From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. It's the holiday season, and now that the new year has officially arrived, everyone is reflecting on highlights from the past year. Here at WWNO and WRKF, we wanted to do the same by revisiting some of our favorite stories and giving you a little bit of behind-the-scenes information on how they came together. For more, we're joined by WWNO's Metro reporter, Carly Berlin. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Alana, you've been at the station for just about a year now. What have been some of your favorite stories? Well, there have been so many incredible stories, but one that really sticks out is an interview I did with Jay Ish, executive director of Deaf Focus. It was all about the tension and turmoil at the Louisiana School for the Deaf. The school had been having a lot of teacher turnover. The principal was fired really abruptly, and there's a big decline in enrollment. And he really just explained that whole story for us. And not only did he tell us this, but he explained it all in American Sign Language. So how were you able to do that interview? Right. Well, because Jay is deaf, the interview required the help of an interpreter named Sylvie Sullivan. I've taken some American Sign Language classes in the past with the hopes of becoming fluent one day, but I am nowhere near interpreter level. So we chatted over Zoom where we could see one another. I was able to ask questions to Jay in American Sign Language while speaking English at the same time. And as he responded, Sylvie interpreted. And I should say that the interview would have also been impossible without the help of Jean Preston. Jean is a member of the band Whisper Party, and she actually joined us for an episode of Liner Notes earlier this year. She's fluent in ASL, so she helped me prepare for the interview. That sounds like quite a process. Why was it important to you that the interview be recorded in a video and put on our website? That's a good question. What it really boils down to is actually something that Jay said during our conversation about deaf education. He said it's not just about doing what's accessible, it's about doing what's appropriate. Doing what's accessible would have been the bare minimum, just airing the conversation on the radio, listeners could hear Sylvie's voice interpreting, and then we'd put a transcript on our website so a deaf audience could read it. But that really just felt like doing the bare minimum. After all, this is a story that directly concerns the state's deaf community. So I felt like it was important for us to go out of our way to show the conversation with Jay so that our audience members could see us communicate in ASL. That felt like the appropriate thing to do. All right. Thanks for sharing all of that, Alana. Of course. And now I think it might be a good time to give this conversation an encore. The Louisiana School for the Deaf is having a lot of problems arise. There's enrollment decrease and teachers are maybe not teaching ASL. Why? What's happening? Well, it's a mess. Frankly, there are a lot of reasons for the declining enrollment. One is that during the pandemic, a lot of families wanted their children to stay at home for health reasons, of course. And some of them decided decided not to send their children back to school afterwards. And also, I feel like some families are not satisfied with the oversight of the special school district, and they want to have stability for their children. The special school district has a very high rate of turnover, turnover, and they have a lack of expert in deaf education, which is 
why you need to have deaf expert, deaf education expert in place who know how to run a school for the deaf. And that's what the children really need. Now, information about teachers not teaching American Sign Language is not actually accurate. Almost all of the teachers at the School for the Deaf are proficient in American Sign Language. And they also go beyond just quote-unquote teaching ASL. They are teaching the curriculum, everything in American Sign Language. Uh, the administration has chased some staff away from the school. And a lot of teachers and staff have resigned because they feel oppressed and they feel that it's a hostile working environment. Um, children are turned away because the school doesn't have enough staff to care for them. And open staff positions are not being filled with competent, qualified staff because uh, they're saying there's a low student enrollment, so it doesn't support the need for more teachers. So it looks like the school has a, created a lack of a lack of qualified staff, but they're turning away. They're using that to justify not filling positions because there's not enough students. It's as if um, the special school district is almost purposely starving the school, trying to close the school. Wow. Well, the previous principal, she took the school position and she raised it a little from F to D. She was fired. Now the Louisiana Association of the Deaf Organization they want her to be reinstated? Why? I want to clarify something. Bringing the, the school grade from an F to a D is actually a huge accomplishment. Um, the school has been as an, at an F grade for over 10 years straight. And all over Louisiana, the pandemic, of course, has severely impacted attendance in all the school. Truancy rates were very high. And the School for the Deaf was also impacted by that as well. But what's hurting the school the most is the, the, test, uh, the state testing score. Do you know that the School for the Deaf gets a lot of students transferred from mainstream school and they are behind on language? And the state expects those teachers at the School for the Deaf to work miracles to get them on par from, with their peer um, immediately. A lot of people also don't consider that most students that we have from outside school coming to the Louisiana School for the Deaf far behind in language. And it takes a lot of hours of intervention and immersion to get the student to grow linguistically to where they're supposed to be. When they come to the school early enough, it takes a lot of hours. But when they come to the school much later, the, the brain eventually... Uh, plateaus when it comes to language acquisition. So you can only imagine for yourself, if you didn't have any language right now, it would be really hard to learn a second language, right? Yeah, how would you be able to take a leap test with people evaluating the quality of your school based on how well you do on that test if you don't even have a language in the first place? And that's where the school has been failing for so many years because the school receives students who are already language deprived. And it's not fair to score the Louisiana School for the Deaf based on how they're performing against hearing school who have children whose family can communicate with them 100% of the time without issues. Most of our students at the School for the Deaf come from families who are hearing, meaning they don't know sign language oftentimes, and that's where the barrier comes in for mainstream students. 
Now, Dr. Lane has that in-depth background knowledge and knowing how to work with those students. She had so many barriers that she was facing, plus the pandemic and the test scores and the staff shortage. And she still was able to bring the school grade from an F to a D. And I'm wondering if the school has no principal, how will it manage? What's next? So right now, SSD has put someone to oversee the instruction in interim. It's kind of messy, though, really, because that person is not qualified. Uh, they don't have an expertise, expertise in deaf education right now. Dr. Lane, at the time, wore several hats, and she did a lot for the school. And that's why it's so crucial that the special school district reinstates Dr. Lane, the principal, um, because she has been and will continue to be what the deaf community requests. You know, there's mainstream education, there's deaf education. Some people assume that mainstream's better, but it's important to have both mm -hmm. options. Tell me why. Because educating deaf students is not just a matter of what is accessible. Just because someone something is accessible doesn't mean that the learning is appropriate or otherwise received by the students, right? It's important to have expertise in deaf education because those experts, they're able to tell us whether something is accessible and appropriate for any given student. The charge is on the special school district to support the Louisiana School for the Deaf and to provide that. And since they don't have the expertise in deaf education themselves, it's important that they listen to the experts in deaf education so that they can provide that. The Louisiana School for the Deaf is meant to be the experts, but for so long, the special school district has been trying to mold LSD to fit the hearing norm. Uh, the schools for the deaf provide deaf children the opportunity to not be isolated, the opportunity to, for incidental learning through visual learning with use of ASL, and the opportunity to have a healthy social, to be a whole healthy social well-being, the opportunity to be friends with their peers, the opportunity to play sports, and the list goes on and on. And I, I'd like to add that I grew up going to a school for the deaf and I would have never traded that experience for anything else in the world. If I may add, I want to mention that deaf advocacy, advocates like me and other people are often perceived as aggressive, but it's a common talking point of those who work to oppress culturally deaf people who use American Sign Language. The deaf community has been fighting this battle here just to be understood for over 200 years. And it's not new. It's really frustrating for us because the illiteracy continue to fall on deaf ears. Thank you. I'm wondering overall, what's your message about accessible but also appropriate deaf education? Mainstream schools cost the state more money. Believe it or not, deaf schools are cheaper because all the students are together in one place. And you put all the resources in that same location. When you have one student in a mainstream school, they are using interpreters from the community, each area to put in different schools. And that creates a shortage of sign language interpreters in the community. So now in our community, we're having issues with a terrible shortage of interpreters because mainstream school thinks that 
uh, interpreters are enough accessibility for those students. But in most situations, deaf students are still isolated in those settings. They don't have a language rich environment. It's not a matter of being accessible only. It's more a matter of giving the child the opportunity to thrive in a language rich env environment. Thanks so much for joining us, Jay from Deaf Focus. My pleasure. I'm so happy to be here with you today. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for letting me sign. <laughs> for sure, for sure. No problem. And it's good to see somebody else learning sign language too. That's great. And again, you can watch this conversation between me, interpreter Sylvie Sullivan, and Jay Ish communicating in American Sign Language on our websites, WWNO and WRKF.org. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber, joined today with our Metro reporter, Carly Berlin. Hey, Carly. Hey, Alana. So I, I know you spent a lot of your time in December at Finn McCool's Irish Pub in New Orleans talking to World Cup fans. That's right. I watched almost every game there, unless, of course, I was in the office trying to make you watch with me. And even though I'm a big soccer fan, I was way more interested in the supporters. It felt like nearly every country playing in the World Cup was somehow represented at this one mid-city bar. That's pretty incredible. And clearly there was no shortage of fans from out of town. But were there any diehard American fans that you met? Tons. Soccer is definitely a growing sport in the U.S., both in terms of playing and watching. In fact, New Orleans is slated to get two new soccer teams, a men's and a women's, in the United Soccer League. They're hoping to get going before 2026. Just in time for the North American World Cup. That's the plan. Back in July, just after this announcement, I interviewed two of the men spearheading these new teams, Jamie Guin and Warren Smith. With the World Cup freshly in our rearview mirror, I think it's time we give this conversation a second listen. Let's start at the beginning. Where did this idea come from to start not just one, but two soccer franchises in New Orleans? Between now and 2025, what needs to be done to get these teams off the ground? Well, there's a lot in that question, uh, Alana, but let me just uh, back up a little bit. I mean, both Jamie and I have had the uh, uh, great pleasure and fun in developing teams in other markets, Jamie and Major League Soccer. Um, we got to see firsthand what a difference these teams mean to communities. And uh, New Orleans being one of the largest communities without uh, professional soccer today, it just made sense to look at, can it be done, number one? Number two, um, you know, does it make sense to do? And then lastly, you know, what's the timetable associated with that? Yeah, I've been in sports entertainment my whole career, and so that's all I know. And uh, I had the, the fortune and pleasure to get the opportunity to um, leave NOLA, although that was sad at the time. What I didn't know is I was going to be able to come back eight years later and unlock it in a real meaningful way. So I couldn't be more ecstatic about that. What, what we've learned is, is that soccer is, a fa is the fat, one of the fastest growing sports in North America, right? And what we've learned as we've dug into the data sets in the local marketplaces, New Orleans watches 
and New Orleans participates in the game. Warren, you have an impressive resume when it comes to building clubs, having led the launch of the Sacramento Republic and San Diego Loyal SC. So tell us a bit about your experience with those clubs and how you'll be able to take what you've learned out in California down to Louisiana. Yeah, well, thank you for that question. You know, I learned I was in baseball and we were running the team in Portland and it came with a little soccer team called the Portland Timbers. And that's where I fell in love with the sport. Portland Timbers were in the USL at the time and we had to figure out how to turn it around. And at the end of the day, we were able to do so. And but during that process is where I fell in love with the fan interaction. Uh, First of all, you're dealing with a younger demographic. So I feel younger when I'm dealing with younger people. Number one. Number two, they were cool as hell and, and just really cool to hang out with. And number three, they really cared emotionally about the team. It wasn't just that they were fans. They really wanted to make sure that they could uh, co-create and help to develop what it, um, what it could turn into. Obviously, you know, after we sold that, uh, we wanted to, you know, I had the opportunity in Sacramento to serve Sacramento in a different way and started the franchise that was massively successful in 2014. We, we won the uh, championship and led in every metric and, you know, after I sold that endeavor to the group that was going to take it to MLS, you know, San Diego was a natural for me because I knew the community well and and uh, Landon Donovan um, was looking for something to do and we just created a, you know, a wonderful relationship. But both clubs are, you know, doing exceptionally well in the league, um, both on revenues and on their on-field, attend, uh, on-field performance. You know, through that process, I found, you know, I've also realized what I really would like to work on. And that is to help communities, you know, a really active base of uh, young people that care deeply about their community and ultimately want to make a difference through the world's game. a beautiful game. Well, Jamie, you're a native New Orleanian. You know the region well. So why do you think soccer will be successful here? I mean, we just lost our minor league baseball team a few years ago. So how do we make sure that Soccer can come here and be here to stay. The wheel goes something like this, Alana. One, New Orleans, as we know, is one of the most passionate sports cities in, in, I would say, arguably the world. I would say we've got passion, uh, number one, and we support our teams, right? I guess as it relates, if you look across history, right? Um, Number two is, I mentioned this in in the prior question, we participate, right? So our, our youth participation so our registrations if you will as it relates to youth soccer players at a grassroots level is growing at a really nice double digit uh increase per year it's showing that there's multi-generations of soccer households in this market that are now choosing soccer as their primary sport of choice at the youth level i would say number three is viewership right people are watching the game there's no pro team here to to rally around and what we're seeing is that Folks here are just really, really uh, hungry for the sport uh, from an appetite standpoint because they're they're getting up super early on Saturday mornings to watch the sport. So that's encouraging. And we're in the top 10 in viewership. Uh, and that's in kind of your major DMA market. You know, we're we're in the same top 10, if you will, in major league soccer viewership. Same goes for NWSL on the women's side. And then I guess when you think about our country, for both men's and women's uh, national teams, we're in the top 10 in viewership. So our folks here locally are really, really excited to watch that stuff on screen, follow it on screen. We are speaking with Jamie Ewan and Warren Smith of USL NOLA. Well, let's talk specifics. Is there any indication on where these teams might play and what they'll be called? 
Currently, what are some of the knowns and unknowns? What we hope to do now is to start asking the community about what they'd like, you know, what type of locations. To give an example, what do they want to do before and after events? Uh, you know, at McCool's, you, you probably have a, a great sense of the timing, right? Soccer is a two-hour event, pretty much start to stop. But people really want to be entertained, uh, you know, for more than four or five hours. So, you know, if that's the case, which we want to learn from the people in the community, uh, then we, you know, that might help us to determine, you know, one location over the other. I also want to point out that the goal here is to create two teams, a men's and women's. In the U.S., we have a history of women's teams not having as many resources as men's. The teams are underfunded, players are underpaid, so how do we make sure that doesn't happen here? That the teams are established equitably, with equal resources, and promoted fairly? I mean, in soccer, I mean, there's a lot more uh, e equality to the level of play between the men's game and the women's game when you're watching the sport, right? Um, so it's about doing the right thing. You know, one of the things that we hope to do is lay an attendance platform that allows us to have the resources to actually invest in and in, in properly in the women's game. And so, um, you know, our goal is to actually start with the USL championship first, build that, you know, say a year or two in and then start the women's franchise so that we're not overloading the public too early. Um, we hope for a 7,500 seat facility, which is uh, really nice attendance. Uh, so uh, the USL has formed a new league. It's called the, uh, the Super, Super League, and it's really the women's game. So it's just getting started. So uh, we hope to uh, be able to deliver that as soon as we can after we start the championship. All right. Well, before we go, paint a picture for me. The year is 2026. The World Cup is coming to North America. The USL NOLA teams have been around for a year. What does it look like? I mean, based off the buzz we've seen in a very short window of time here this week, it's been um, the, the response, like I said, in just a short window of time has been overwhelmingly positive. And um, it seems to be that we're, we're starting to scratch on an itch that needs to be scratched in the marketplace as it relates to giving this market what they want, and that's soccer product. And so I think if we do our jobs right and we enroll the community, which is what we're doing right now, to participate with us, alongside us, again, we got a lot of work to do, but the early signs are positive. The nice thing about what I have seen about these clubs is the way we operate is just so different than professional sports than you are used to. You know, it's really important for us to be, you know, active members, but to actually make a difference in the community. You know, we're not just going to show up to events. We're going to be involved. To give an example, we just learned of this coalition that's starting to combat this crime. That's something we're going to participate in. In fact, when we're up and operational, we'll probably be providing a lot of programming in areas that are underserved where we can get kids to actually uh, participate in something positive. Really making a difference in the community is really what I think that you, the, what the New Orleanians are going to learn through this process is really, it's not about just soccer. It's how do we use this tool to make the community an even greater place to live, work, and play. This has been Jamie Guin and Warren Smith of USL NOLA. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you, Alana. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, 
You've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Thanks to our guests, Executive Director of Deaf Focus for the Louisiana Association of the Deaf, Jay Ish, and Jamie Guin and Warren Smith of USL NOLA. Our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz, and our engineers are Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Purcell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Historic New Orleans Collection.